Good afternoon, you're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. I was away last week and you know, I really missed you guys, so really, really excited to be back. We've got quite an interesting show lined up. We'll be talking on all matters continental, that is around Africa. So that's touching on the allegations of child abuse by UN peacekeepers in the Central African Republic and also some of the political unrest in Burundi. But before that, um, I'd really lo- like to talk about something that's happened over the past week. Um, now, on the 9th of May, the WHO officially declared Liberia free from Ebola transmission. Now, thinking back to, I mean, to last year now, when, when, when the outbreak really started to evolve, it was, it was crazy. I mean, the images were absolutely gruesome. Um, and, and I think at some point it was declared the worst, the worst outbreak in history. So to, I mean, to hear, to hear that just, I mean, about, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 months later, that it's, 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 it's free of Ebola transmission is, is really incredible. Um, so it just got me thinking about, I mean, what, what it's like on the ground for people right at the front lines of, of, of fighting Ebola and who've, who've been incredibly successful in, in getting us to where we are. And we have a person in studio to do just that. Um, Claire Waterhouse, welcome to the show. Hey, Kingsley. <laughs> Now, Claire, you, you, you are incredible, man. You, you've been, for the past year and, and some change, you've been actually in Liberia fighting Ebola. Not quite for the past year, but yeah, I was there for a couple of months earlier wow. this year. Yeah. Wow. So what on earth makes, makes, makes a person living their normal life, you know, <laughs> go to the movies, stay at home, you know, watch TV, stand up and say, you know what? I am going to go and, 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 and be part of the change. I'm going to go and, and, and be, and fight Ebola. To be honest, I think a small touch of insanity, but um, also I have been working with MSF Doctors Without Borders Mm. for a while now as a field worker. And so obviously the Ebola fight was a huge deal for us at Doctors Without Borders. And when the chance came for me to be able to be a part of that, to be able to be in some tiny way a part of the fight against Ebola, I I jumped. I know it may sound strange to to other people, but it, it was an important thing for me to do. I felt like... You know, there's so many people putting their lives on the line for this, and it's such a huge crisis. Um, when I had the chance, yeah, I didn't think twice. I mean, I mean, following it from here, we had, I mean, the, the stats. I mean, that I seemed to catch was we had hundreds of people getting infected every week. Mm-hmm. Um, the deceased were also in the in the hundreds, thousands. So, I mean, yeah. how, how do you prepare for that? How do you sit here and be like, how do you mentally prepare? How do you practically prepare to go in and be in that environment? I I don't actually know if you can prepare okay. for it. I mean, when you get there, the reality hits you pretty quickly of what it's like and mm. how serious it is. I, I was there, to be honest, when things were calming down a little okay. bit. And even then, you could still... I mean, the fear was tangible. People were just so scared of what this epidemic could do, could still do, what it had already done to their country. So, you know, preparing for that, you can tell yourself, yes, uh, I have to be careful. Yes, this this is a real danger. Um, but it's all really abstract until you're actually there and you're actually having to spray your feet with chlorine every time you enter a building and have your temperature taken three times a day and uh, and wash your hands with chlorine everywhere you go. So those kinds of things 
happens, that's when it hits home. That's when you realize, you know, these tiny small things could make the difference between life and death and for everyone. So, yeah, it's it's hard to prepare until you're actually there, I have to say. I mean, so before you go, do you, do you like call your family and be like, listen, I'm going and and I may not come back? Like, how how does that phone call go? Well, I was fairly confident I would come okay. back. So you, you had MSF okay. has been, they're amazing okay. at, at protecting their health workers. They okay. know, you know, there are so many safety pro- protocols in place. There are so many uh, precautions taken for everyone, local staff, uh, international staff, patients, just general people. It's there. So I was pretty confident with okay. MSF safety standards. <laughs> okay. But that said, I mean, breaking that news to your family um, can be interesting. Um, they were really as supportive as they could be. But okay. of course, I mean, telling your dad and your mom that you're about to go off to this place with Ebola, they were also pretty terrified. So I think they were pretty happy when I got back. Yeah. And especially pretty happy uh, last Tuesday because we have a 21-day monitoring period yeah. when we get back. So last Tuesday, I was officially Ebola free, no chance of getting it. And uh, they were pretty happy when I passed that mark. So you mean well. between you getting back and last Tuesday, there was still a possibility that you maybe had the virus and it was maybe next like It's really just a safety precaution, it's, I think. Um, but it is important to, you've got to pay really close attention to your health during that time. Mm. And, and, you know, you're closely monitored. And uh, I think that's good. It, it made me feel safe. I think it made the people f- around me feel safe. There was so little risk, but it was still, it's still important to do. So, yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm just picturing sitting down and being like, I am, cause we just see, I mean, the rest of us, we see it on the TV and, and, and what you see, unfortunately, the way the media works is the worst of the worst. Yeah. So you're seeing, you're seeing bodies yeah. piled up and you, you know, you're seeing people crying and mourning their loved ones, mm. people being locked out of medical centers. Yeah. So when, when I meet you and you say that's where you've been, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm picturing this. Yeah. This complete situation of anarchy and Well, chaos. yeah, and I have to, I mean, this is probably one of the few circumstances where the media has portrayed fairly accurately what it was like during the worst of the, the epidemic. And, and let's not forget, Liberia is Ebola free now, but Guinea yeah. and Sierra Leone are still struggling to beat the epidemic, still struggling to have their 42 days without cases. So, uh, the epidemic might be over in Liberia, but it's not over in the region. And until it is over in the region, we have to be vigilant. It's, it's, an epidemic that knows no borders. So. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you've got people flying, getting on planes. The physical yeah, borders are pretty exactly. porous. So it's yeah, yeah. I mean, border surveillance is one of the most important things, but also just a, in general vigilance of on all levels and in all three of those countries is so important at the moment. And when Liberia was declared free, I yeah. mean, that's a that's a great, it's an amazing thing. I couldn't be more proud of the Liberian government, the Liberian people. They did this. They worked so hard. Yeah, to I meant to, to ask you, what is it like when you're sitting and you see the news? I mean, I, I was excited. That's amazing. I can imagine when somebody tells you, how did you find out? Um, I knew it was coming okay. because we knew when the 40 day, okay, so 42 day mark was coming, okay. but I was just waiting, waiting because actually when I was there, yeah. we were on the build up to that 42 okay. day mark and then okay. suddenly we got a case out of the blue and it was just devastating. We were so stressed and upset that how did this happen and what's going to happen next? And you don't you know? have infected other people. Yeah, you, have, you know, it starts the whole yeah. process again yeah. but I have to say I was in the center when it was, when that case was confirmed and um you could you could literally see everyone like deflate and be like, oh no, we start again. But then five minutes later, every single staff, they knew what they needed to do. Okay. They, you know, you spring into action and it was just 
phenomenal to see because you could see how quickly we knew what to do, we got it done, and unfortunately that case had a sad outcome and the patient didn't make it. But hopefully through our monitoring and our health promotion and all of those things, that contributed to there not being any other cases. Yeah. So, yeah. And, I mean, and it was hard work, man, just so reading. I mean, you wrote an article for the Daily Maverick that's been published this morning. And, and some of the stories, you said that you could not touch anyone yes. and you couldn't touch your own face. Yeah, I mean, I was really bad at not <laughs> touching my own face, I have to be honest. But it is. You, you can't touch anyone. And that no-touch policy is probably one of the biggest reasons that it's so safe to work for MSF during this, this kind so of you a just, thing. No handshakes, no, no hugs. No handshakes, no hugs. No sort no of passing hugs. a pen and you kind yeah, of touch you, each other. you don't share pens. You don't anything. You know, nothing like that. We don't share cutlery, crockery, um, anything like that. And uh, it's hard to get used to, you know. You want to shake people's hands when you meet them. You're meeting so many new people. You want to be like, hey, how's it going? But instead you get used to just like waving from a distance. And, and, you know, when your colleagues had a tough day, you want to pat them on the back or things like that. So you do get used to it quite quickly, but it's it's pretty hard. And then when I got back, it was very like... Uh, why are you touching when people me? Don't why are all these like, people Clear. touching me? It's like, yeah, oh, yeah, don't, yeah don't. it took a <laughs> moment to get used to it, but it's really nice to be able to hug people again. And you mentioned the chlorine, so you, you're washing like yourself yes, and your your everything is chlorinated. You should see my shoes that I had from them. They're just they started off as lovely black Converse's, and now they're just this pale, gross color from being chlorinated every single day, everywhere you go. They're falling apart because of the chlorine gets really in our clothes were washed in light chlorine solution there was chlorine in the water all that stuff so took a few days when i got back to just stop smelling of chlorine (laughs) (laughs) like i'm just i'm just trying to picture like all these measures and then the suit so we've not even mentioned the gigantic suit you have to wear it kind of looked like almost an astronaut kind of like padding and yeah yeah so i only actually had to go to the high risk zone once which involved wearing that the personal protective equipment once um but Wow, once was more than enough and it just really made me realize the people who were in there every single day and it's largely national Liberian staff who, they're just such heroes, honestly. And, uh, the way, I mean, they have to put those things on every single day and go in there and clean up after sick patients, move really sick people, sometimes even dead bodies, you know, and it's just, it's awful. And those suits are heavy and hot i cannot express how hot i've never sweated so much in my life and you come out of there and i mean literally you take off your gum boots and you you pour sweat out of them um so yeah it's a pretty intense experience you can feel your heart beating the entire time and you just know that if you touch one wrong thing it could put you at risk so you have to be so careful and so alert and um the people I went in with were phenomenal, I have to say. They guided me through the whole thing. They showed me everything. And, and I felt really, really safe. But you can see how easy it is to lose concentration and, and in that heat, get dehydrated, anything like that. It's, it's not an easy job at all. Man, I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine living and like knowing that one misstep. Yeah. So the wrong touch or the wrong, I don't yeah. know, the wrong pen and, and who knows what. what yeah. Kind of it's very, I mean, it's, it's, Unfortunately, with Ebola, it is that easy, but it's it, all those precautions are yeah. in place for a reason, you know, and I think that's why we were able to keep infections as low as we were. So, yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean, how 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 do you think that impacts? I mean, your outlook today. I mean, being that aware of yourself mm. and of like mortality <laughs> for so long. 
Yeah. How how has that impacted you in any way? Like now that you're sort of back in sort of regular like regular day to day life. You know what? I think you just realize how lucky you are. Uh, you realize that we we are so lucky to have the health systems that we have. We are so lucky to be in a country where it hasn't the epidemic didn't make it. You yeah. know, um, in Liberia at the moment, the health systems have been decimated by the epidemic. It's just unbelievable because all the basic health care that yeah. needed to continue during that time was unable to do so because of the epidemic. There was such fear. There was, you know, all available resources were being used to fight the epidemic, which means now the epidemic is over for Liberia. <laughs> Fingers crossed it stays that way. Yeah. But, you know, there's people dying of malaria. There's there's um, measles outbreaks. Yeah, it's whatever. Like, yeah, everything. exactly. There's all those things yeah. that normally should have been being taken care of and have suffered greatly. So actually there's still a huge need for help in Liberia just to get those health services back on track at the moment. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking of this as... Uh, surely a, a, a real formative experience for you and, and how it really was it really was i'm i'm really proud of having been and gone but i'm especially proud of just everyone who was involved in it um the msf was there from the beginning and and they did an amazing job um but especially you know local liberians local Guineans, local sierra leoneans who are just they haven't given up they're still there they're still fighting and they will continue and it's hard. I mean, I had colleagues and staff who, who their landlords kicked them out because they were working for us in an Ebola treatment center. Or, you know, their families didn't want to see them until the epidemic was done and those kinds of things. There's a huge stigma around Ebola, and especially if you're a survivor. A lot of survivors, you know, they survive, but they go out there and, and life is still difficult. People are afraid of catching the epidemic, and I, I completely understand it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to be a survivor. We, we had many survivors mm. and there's a lot of I think people seem to think that once you survived well done life's great but actually it's not as easy as all that what are so you saying people who are part of the Ebola relief and their landlords would find out and, and kick them out of their place yeah in some cases yeah. yes because I think it's impossible to to overestimate how yeah. scary that period was in the peak you know people were just dying in the streets people were were catching it from everywhere and it yeah. was so hard to see where one contact began mm. and the next finished you know so i think people were really really panicked and uh, that makes it even more amazing that liberia has managed to end the epidemic this quickly because they were the ones who had it worse monrovia and liberia yeah. who were more than 10,000 cases and um so to come from that point just a few no. months ago to get to now is yeah. is really amazing I mean, thanks to people like you, Claire, for, for being part of it. <laughs> in that. a tiny, tiny way, yes. You know, and so, I mean, you guys clearly did something right. Cause, I mean, Guinea and Sierra Leone, unfortunately, are not as, are not as far along in their fight as Liberia. What, what, what do you think you guys, and about you guys, I mean, MSF, <laughs> of course, and the country as a whole, what, what, what was done differently? Cause that seemed to be re really, really effective. You know what? I think it's, it's hard to say. Um, I have no doubt that Guinea and Sierra Leone will get there. Yeah. I think it's just taking a little more time. I think, Probably, you know, the Liberian government was, was pretty transparent and communities yeah. were more empowered and able to take control over things like 
creating awareness, getting people to centers and things like that. But also there was a, a funding difference. Um, more funding went to Liberia for some reason than Guinea and Sierra Leone, which went against the actual population demographics. So I'm not sure why or how that happened, but MSF has been in all three countries since the beginning. Okay. And uh, MSF will remain in all three countries, even Liberia, now that it's done. Okay. Because we need to be ready to react if... If it starts again. So, uh, and of course we will do the same in Guinea and Sierra Leone. We'll be there until the epidemic is over, but even long past that to make sure that, that, uh, that it really is gone. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I really like that you emphasize the community aspect. I think that's something that comes up, not only in the border relief, just in policy implementation, just mm. period. <laughs> like, the second you get communities part. involved in self-managing exactly. and self-policing, it just goes. It's, it's a huge part of it. And yeah. I really did see that in action in Liberia. Yeah. Communities working together, spreading the word. Literally every day we had health promoters going into different areas of the city just saying, oh. don't forget to wash your hands, don't forget to do this. And communities took up that message and spread it themselves. And, and that was so important because I think perhaps in Guinea and Sierra Leone there was more suspicion initially, more uh, not a lack of understanding, you know, trying to get where, why this was happening. And in Liberia, that message was really picked up really quickly. And through the perseverance of the Liberian government yeah. and the Liberian people, we're at this phase. And that's amazing. I, I really do believe that Guinea and Sierra Leone are on their way as well. Yeah. But it's important not to forget that the epidemic is not over there yeah. yet. And we are still hugely active there. And um, and we still, the fight against Ebola isn't over. It's okay. less in the headlines, but it's definitely Okay, so it's a very over. temporary moment of, yeah. of, of sort of happiness, but we're, yeah. still, we're still fighting. Yeah. Until we reach that 42-day yeah. mark for all three for countries, all three countries. that's when I'll really breathe a sigh of relief. Okay. Um, I mean, Claire, we, we just need to make sure that we're still getting the word out there. I mean, how do we, how do we support the work you're doing and, and making sure that, that the whole continent is Ebola free? Uh, well, actually, it's very easy. <laughs> you can go to msf.org.za at any point. There's a big donate button on there. You can yeah. click on there. There's various ways that you can donate, a once-off donation, a monthly donation. I think there's even a number you can SMS to donate. All the options are laid out on the website. And MSF is unique in that its donations go seriously massively to directly towards our programs and mm. these kinds of things. So um, I would really encourage anyone who is still worried about Ebola or even, you know, we're fighting battles on all fronts at the moment. Yeah. There's there's uh, Nepal. There's all sorts of terrible things happening in the world right there. Uh, right now, your donation can go to any of those things. So if you're thinking about it, um, do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll make sure to tweet, to tweet all those links up to the show. Thing. I mean, so Claire, now you have a responsibility because I mean, you know how we do things as in South Africa. We, we bitch a lot, man. You know, so we have a bribe. We sit down. We say, oh, ESCOM is no power. Yeah. Jacob Zuma is stealing everything. And, oh, so I think you're that person who's like, okay, I mean, yes, we've got some issues, but you know, let, let's be thankful for, for some of the basics that we do have. I mean, we're yeah. thankful not to cast a virus and health system despite the shortcomings. You know, basic totally. health infrastructure is not doing so bad. Eh? Yeah, yeah. This is the thing. I think everything's relative. Yeah. Um, sure, we've got lots of problems in South Africa mm. and we need to work on those as well. But I think the big thing is is not to give up hope in any of these circumstances. I, I try to stay optimistic despite these kinds of things. So, And we are so lucky compared to those those countries where their, their health infrastructures really weren't built to manage a, a, an epidemic like yeah. this and, and still need so much help to get past it. I mean, absolutely. I mean, now, Claire, I know you need to get out of here pretty soon, but, I mean, for me, the big question is what's next? What does one do <laughs> when you've just come from the front lines of fighting the... You know, I dare say sort of the biggest, like, 
Um, like no, not IDSA. It was it was declared the biggest outbreak yeah. that we've had in, yeah. in history. So that's where you've been. You've been on the front lines, mm-hmm. fighting for the rest of us to be happy and healthy and live our normal <laughs> lives. That's what you've been doing. Yeah. What on earth does one do next? I uh, you know you take a nice long break. <laughs> you take a nap. <laughs> yeah, I think I've I've taken several really good naps, and uh, I'll probably carry on with some good napping. Um, and then I will see what next MSF has in store with me. What Doctors Without Borders want to give me? Um, yeah, I uh, who knows where it could be? I don't know, but uh, hopefully something as challenging and as rewarding as the last one. So you will actually be sticking around with MSF and still, yeah, still doing the work. Yeah, I, that's my plan for the for the meantime. It's not always easy, and I'll probably give my family a few more heart attacks along the way. Oh but boy. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> it's it's so worth it. I honestly, um, I I love it. So yes. I mean, I can imagine the kind of relationships that form with your with your sort of colleagues and with the, yeah. the organization when you're in, under those kinds of circumstances. Yeah. Together. I mean, I've worked with some amazing people. I've I've also spent some time in the Central African Republic okay. uh, with MSF and and now in Liberia. And the people who work with MSF in their own countries, it's they're just phenomenal people. They work hard and they have witnessed terrible, terrible things. Mm. And they they really are the heroes in this. I think. A lot of the time, international staff get a lot of attention in their home countries, but yeah. um, the guys I work with back in those countries, they're just phenomenal people, and uh, yeah, they're the ones who deserve all the, <laughs> the praise, I have to say. I mean, the way, the way you was like, the guys I was with, the guys I was with, it, it sort of reminds me when people have, uh, have been in the army and served in the military, <laughs> and they always talk about the guys. And I don't mean it in a silly way. I think it's just when someone has had an experience with a yeah. group, and the rest of us sort of just can't mm. quite grasp. There probably is that same sense of camaraderie, yeah. I think. You know, you go through something really tough like that, yeah. and you're all fighting for this one goal of providing quality health care to people, no matter who they are. And uh, whether you're in an epidemic or whether you're in a war zone or whatever you're in, yeah. it's it's still you're all together. You stick together, and it doesn't actually matter who's who at that time. And um, and it's a pretty phenomenal experience to be part of. It's tough. It's definitely tough, but it's it's very rewarding. I mean, I can imagine at, at that at that sort of human friendship level. But I'm I'm also curious about sort of on a more sort of bigger and policy level mm-hmm. when you look at when you look at South Africa and how the, the public health is set up and so on. Um, has it changed how you, f- how you view that? Are you like, mm, given what I've seen, maybe we're not quite as ready for, I don't know, for disaster relief or that, that kind of, um, fighting that kind of virus or epidemic? Mm-hmm. Or are you, I don't know, do you have any, any thoughts or are you interested in that sort of, sort of sector wide policy level health? Look, to be honest, I'm yeah. probably not as informed on that as I should be, yeah. but um, I it has shown me how yeah. important healthcare is yeah. on every level, in every community, in every society. Um, it's just so important that anyone can access quality, free, accessible healthcare. And um, I mean, to be honest, yes, that is something South Africa needs to work on, but it's something that a lot of places need to work yeah. on. And, and seeing MSF providing those services has just made me, it's really reinforced for me how important access to those services, to drugs, to uh, treatments, all those kinds of things are, because it's amazing how many small Simple treatable illnesses can kill people very quickly in the in the wrong circumstances and without the right treatment. So it's really opened my eyes to that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope we can we can sort of retain your your thinking and your skills <laughs> in the country and help you contribute to. I hope so. I really okay. do hope so. Okay, perfect. So when we have when we have the minister of health on, we need to, <laughs> we need to pass on your CV. Yeah, sure. One day. <laughs> on it. Um, I think Greg Nicholson, um, who often co-hosts with me, I think he's working on a big health health piece so okay. we'll 
You so know. we'll look forward to reading there that. There we go. We'll do that. Great. Okay. Claire, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Kingsley. That went um, really quickly. There we go. I'm telling you. Time <laughs> flies. Again, thank you so much for your great, great efforts in, no, thanks for having in me fighting up. that, the big fight uh, for, for all of us to be, to be healthy and, and keep doing what we do. Thanks. Fantastic. Uh, as mentioned, uh, you can support MSF via the website and, and we'll make sure to tweet, to tweet everything after the show. So you can tune in. Again, thanks for tuning in. We will be back just after this break. And now we return to Not My Season. Oh, Manuel, you shouldn't have come here. I couldn't stay away, Gloria. Oh, my husband will be home soon. I don't care. Ah. If we don't tell him, he will hear it from someone else. No, Rodrigo must never find out. Rodrigo must never find out about what? Rodrigo? Rodrigo. Manuel, what are you doing in my house? No, Rodrigo, it's not what it looked like, I promise. <laughs> Manuel can't speak for himself. No, please, please. He must know, Gloria. Know what? It's... Huh? It's Ronaldo. What about Ronaldo? They say he has been suspended. No. He will not play the next match. Huh? It's on the news. Oh. The whole of Madrid knows. Oh. The people in Barcelona, oh. they're celebrating already. This cannot be. It's true. Why Ronaldo? Why? <laughs> men's issues need men's tissues. Twin Saver 3-ply tissues for men. They say, if you want to succeed, you have to go to school. If you want to be big and strong, you need to eat good. No matter what, there's nothing more important than family. There are so many children like me in South Africa that also don't have any of these things. If you could change this, would you? By clicking a like button on Facebook, you can help get children from cradle to career with Africa Tukun. Visit likechange.africatukun.org. It has been locked away from the eyes of the world. Chained, never to be released. But now, it wants to get out. Stay tuned to Clef Central weekdays to find out how you can unleash the Jeep Renegade. Find hidden codes and videos posted by Jeep SA and you could win Jeep Renegade prizes. As well as become the person to single-handedly unleash the Jeep Renegade upon the shores of South Africa. Are you renegade enough? I'm a renegade, I just hit the ground running. Visit unleashrenegade.co.za to find out. T's and C's apply. If you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Uh, we're just about to kick off the second half of our show. I'm joined in studio by Simon Allison. Welcome to the show, Simon. Hi, Kingsley. Now, you are, as, as always, our Africa guru, always, always in touch with what's going on around the continent. Well, it's an impossible job, that, isn't it? it? I, my brief is, is the 53 African countries that are not South Africa. That's it. And it's, it's absolutely impossible. Oh. So I just try and keep on top of the sort of burning issues of the day. And the rest I kind of have to ignore until something goes wrong. And then you just sort of like scramble <laughs> yes. to the other part. I mean, Simon, I was reading one of your articles the other day and I, and I was just completely astounded. And, 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 and it was about the allegations. And you'll tell me whether these are still allegations or actually it's been confirmed. That the, the French peacekeeping soldiers that have been in the Central African Republic have been, have been abusing children that they were supposed to be keeping safe. This was 
Just a horrendous story. Um, you know, I, I've covered a lot of really horrible things, but I think this hurt particularly badly because it's the people that are supposed to be the forces for good. You know, the United Nations, in theory, are supposed to come in and fix things and guard the human rights and protect the civilians. And yet they're committing some of the worst crimes of all. So let me take you through please, what exactly please, happened. Please, please, please. Sort of in the middle of last year, the United Nations office in the Central African Republic got a, got wind of these, these allegations that, that French troops were, um, sexually abusing local children. Um, and this was children who were trying, who were either living in or trying to get into, um, internally displaced persons camps. So these were the camps set up by the international community to look after civilians. And these French soldiers um, were apparently um, demanding sexual favors in return for food or in return for access. So the UN compiled a report. It has investigated this allega- these allegations. And it concluded that actually there's a lot of substance to these allegations. It even named, I think it was 14 French soldiers who were involved. So the, the UN office in the CAR did this lovely report, well, this damning report, sent it to their superiors in um, New York, and then nothing happened. So you're saying that this report said, so you've got these IDPs, right? That yes. if you're in trouble and you sort of need refuge, you go here. Yes. And the troops are guarding this internally displaced uh, people camps exactly, and they were trading sexual favors for access to those yes. to camps from from children. Yes, okay. The report oh. finds this and names like names actual people who are allegedly upon. It does. Okay, so now I'm with you now. Okay, it's sent to the to the seniors, and we we await action, and we await action, and we await action, and we await action. Nothing happens. The report sits. Eventually, one of the UN officials. Um, he, a guy called Anders Kompass, I think he is Swedish, he decided that he couldn't, that this was just wrong, he couldn't live with it anymore. So what he did is he leaked a copy of this report, not to the media, not to the world, not to embarrass the United Nations, he leaked it to the French authorities, okay. with a little memo saying, you know what, maybe you should F- do something F- about F- this. F- FYI. Um, Jeez. And the French, to their credit, responded yeah. pretty much immediately. Said, "Whoa, okay, we didn't know about this. We're gonna we're gonna investigate and sort this out." Um, a few months after that, an NGO that sort of investigates um, the the UN and sexual abuse, because this is not an isolated case. Um, the sort of UN has been involved in sexual abuse before. They got wind of this report and they leaked the report to the Guardian, and the Guardian published it. So the only reason that we know any of this happened is because the Guardian managed to publish um, the contents of, of, the report. of the report. And subsequent to that, the UN whistleblower, so this Anders Kompass guy, yeah. who did the right thing in telling the French that they had a problem and needed to sort it out. I mean, I mean, I don't, there's no circumstance in the world that I can see where he did the wrong thing. He um, was put on um, disciplinary suspension and they started talking about laying charges against him. Now, once again, this is the United Nations. You, you'd imagine they'd be the people who'd be protecting the rights of whistleblowers um, and protectors of human rights, but but they haven't been. And, and this is the great scandal. So now the situation is 
The French have publicly said, yes, we acknowledge there was a problem. We are investigating um, with the possibility of criminal proceedings. The UN has since backtracked just a little bit. Um, and I think that they have, they have, they have, they've, they've, Returned Anders Kompas to his job, though I need to confirm that. Yeah. Um, their argument about him was that, well, we were trying to protect the miners oh, and their identities. Oh, there you go. I mean, if you wanted to protect the miners in the CAR, maybe, maybe you don't abuse you'd, them. You'd, you'd, you'd put yeah. that report in the hands of someone who could do something about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Now, the most disturbing thing about all of this is that sources in Bengi. Um, that's, that's have the, told that's me, the capital, yeah, of, the capital of the Central African Republic, Republic have said, you know what, this is not an isolated case. It's not just the French. It is a relatively widespread practice within the United Nations forces themselves. Um, and it's not just sexual abuse, although that's part of it. If, about a year, 18 months ago, when Chad was still part of the UN forces, yeah. I think that they were then the African Union forces, in Bangui, they were implicated in pretty severe human rights abuses, you know, summary executions, torture, firing on protesters, that kind of thing. So clearly it, it raises a lot of really serious problems about peacekeepers. Who is going to keep the peace when even the peacekeepers are implicated in yeah. these kinds of abuses? Yeah. Who can we look to? You know, we always talk in conflict situations. We always talk about looking to the international community yeah. to come in and sort things out. Well, if the international community comes in and does the same things that, you know, the rebel warlords are accused of doing. Yeah. That's exactly what's happened in this case. And if I was a citizen of the Central African Republic, who do you turn to? The Your own government has let you down repeatedly. The rebel government that replaced them has let you down repeatedly. The French forces have let you down. The African Union forces have let you down. And the UN has now let you down. There is literally no one um, that you can trust. And it breeds, you know, in the long-term effects of this is it kind of breeds a situation of anarchy because if you, if there is no authority which you can trust, then you have to do things on your own. And it means that even if the CAR starts getting it, getting back on its feet and starts having a government again, why would anyone trust it? Why would anyone, you know, enter into the basic social contract between the rulers and the governed, which which is what kind of defines every nation? I just think that this is so endemic of of, of a deeper problem, and I I kind of despair because I don't see a solution, and I don't see who has the moral authority to bring a solution anymore. Yeah. I mean, I've been pretty quiet to be honest because I, I I'm actually astounded. I'm. I mean, because I, when I read your article and I'm sitting there, I, I couldn't believe that this was not the biggest story, like, out there. <laughs> it's true. That's another thing. Is, yeah. is it, the, the story yeah, kind no. of died. Kind I, of not a big story deal, I wrote yeah. in the Daily Maverick yeah. was little more than, than a summary. I'm of just like, guys, just so you know. Like, <laughs> and the reason I wrote it was not because I added anything new, but because I felt the story had died and, and needed more attention, you know, um, any kind of attention. Any kind of um, consequences, you know, the things that we do get outraged about. I think about South Africa getting outraged about a picture of Jacob Zuma's penis. Um, and yet this happens on our own continent and no one in this country even knows. It feels like our priorities are all completely skewed. I mean, and then to find out that this is not, and it turns out it's not a big deal because it, 
It turns out this happens all the time. Exactly. So to find out that UN peacekeepers and not not necessarily UN but just general peacekeeping forces on the on the continent are regularly just like alone to themselves and kind of just do on it the continent and in, in and in other places in the world. Yeah. It seems that if you send and maybe it's a function of of power and how power works, you send anyone who's well armed, well fed, well equipped, yeah. well trained. Into environments where they are surrounded by entirely powerless, entirely vulnerable people, it seems to engender these kinds of abuses, whether it's the warlords, whether it's the rebel commanders, or whether it's the UN peacekeepers. Um, any kind of, of mismatch of power creates a that situation. Ex- that extreme. To, yeah. That extreme creates a situation where um, maybe these people that are, that are the victims become not actual people they become i don't know they're, they're, they're just I don't know. objects um it, it's it's a really the psychology behind it is really interesting and, and not very well understood or researched um and I, I i'd like to know more because you know you kind of imagine people going in with the un i mean at a sort of basic level surely they they, they they're basically good decent people and yet this happens despite that I mean, that's what we hope, but I mean, I mean, if you're in a peacekeeping force, I imagine you're just, before that, you're just in the military, right? So, and I noticed that people in the military are old, you know, the sort of rapists. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just thinking, we, we talk about the effects of war, right? So if I'm in a war and I'm faced with, with death and blood and, and, and murder and no, and no support systems for X amount of time, there's systems in place, I hope, <laughs> to, to safeguard my humanity as a person. I don't know, do we take the same care with peacekeepers? And I, and I hate to make this about them. But at some point, and we did this when we talked about terrorists, um, maybe it's not too helpful to be like, oh, the peacekeepers are the enemy, we must all kill them and banish them. To stop and wait a second and be like, what's going on? What takes somebody who we assume at the point of joining this force is trying to do something decent and trying to do something good? Exactly. And it seems that they're consistently becoming perpetrators. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I attended a very interesting conference recently mm. um, about Boko Haram and Nigeria. And, you know, the, the primary response to Boko Haram has been military. Um, But there is a little unit within the Nigerian government. It gets hardly any funding and hardly any attention. But it is trying to fight the psychological battle. And what it's doing is it's basically providing psychologists to go into communities and speak with people who have been affected by Boko Haram activities or Nigerian military activities, because we know they've also been implicated in horrendous civilian offenses, um, to try and basically help communities to recover from these kinds of things. In addition, they're sending psychologists to work with Nigerian soldiers who are having to deal with the consequences mm. of of Boko Haram atrocities. And it's to try and mitigate exactly that, to try and... and you know, because the, the post-traumatic stress that these people must go through is huge. Um, and I think the same applies to peacekeepers yeah. working in places like the Central African Republic. They see horrible things. Yeah. Um, they witness other people doing horrible things. That has an impact on your brain, how it functions. It must warp your sense of right and wrong, your sense of priorities. I wonder how much attention is being paid to... Helping people with that, and, and and my gut feeling is is not very much because it's not a very sexy thing to put your money in. You've know, got a limited budget. Well, <laughs> let's let's send another soldier with another gun rather yeah. than a team of 
of Namby Pamby psychology. Yeah, to talk to people and just <laughs> hug, <laughs> hug everyone. And it does sound silly if you're trying to come up with a practical solution, but then you realize it's <laughs> without it. It's it, pretty serious. Yeah, without it, this is where we end up. And, and, and just, I'm just thinking how embarrassing uh, and for the UN and not, not only embarrassing, but just, how sort of shaking for the foundation on which they are built mm-hmm. on, which is sort of the safeguarders of peace. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. The peace and human rights and this, and this comes up. It also up. says a lot for the, about the French. Um, and they, the French are, I mean, the French have been very active in Africa in yeah. recent years. So they've been in Cote d'Ivoire. They've been in Mali. Um, I think they were in Libya too. They have been in the Central African Republic in a big way. And this is all part of, uh, President Francois Hollande's Attempt to sort of remake France's engagement with Africa. Cause yeah. you know, that's got a long and very nasty history of colonialism, of meddling in, in African governments, oh, yeah. of brown paper packets to influence African politics. You know, France, France has done some dodgy things. So, so what, what Hollande said is like, no, this is, yeah. this is new. This is, this is a, France is now a force for good in Africa. We're we doing the right thing. And you know, they've got a lot of praise for, you know, helping in Cote d'Ivoire, safeguarding the Malian government. Um, you know, they've been credited with preventing Central African Republic from completely falling apart. So this isn't to take away yeah. from what they've done, but just even this sort of, and, and it's a highly trained, highly disciplined fighting force that's going in there. Um, these are the cream of the crop, you know, uh, in terms of fighting forces mm. go. And yet even they do not have the discipline to a know what their own troops are doing, they yeah. have to be told by someone else, yeah. and b to um, to stop the troops doing stuff like that in the first place. Yeah. Um, and if they don't have the discipline, then who does? You know, I keep any tangent I go on around <laughs> this issue ends up in this this question of well, who can we trust anymore? Yeah, I mean, who polices who polices <laughs> the world? <laughs> exactly. um, I think I mean, Simon, you you studied you studied these things and you know a lot more than I do. But I we need to man, we need to sit down in front of a whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, just start and, all and over just again. rethink and just rethink global governance, right? Because you've got regional blocks, you've got the AU, you've got the UN, and it's sort of. On paper, it sounds like it works, but I mean, what happens? With, like, who polices the, the ultimate polices? And no, the, the, this global governance question—it's yeah. it's a really big one. I mean, I was listening to your your chat with with Claire Waterhouse from MSF, mm. and you know, a lot of the people I've spoken to about Ebola, um, and and all credit to MSF—they were Absolutely. raising the alarm really early and really loud, yeah. and they were sitting there being like, why are people not and The rest of us were just you like, know? Ebola, is that still a um, thing? Are we still doing but that? But the international yeah. community, the, the, those systems of global governance were so slow to react, and the, the World Health Organization in particular has come in for, for a lot of flack, yeah. because it just it, it couldn't react fast enough or quick enough to the events on the ground, and if it had, even by a matter of months, we could have been looking at exponentially fewer deaths so you're absolutely right uh, you know it's not just the central african republic but it's also liberia sierra leone guinea and a number of other conflict areas where this global governance system that is meant to prevent these wars it's only working in developed world countries actually when you think about where it. is it working i'm, I'm curious for an, an example well, of where this works well my you know this is a very yeah. hastily thought out thesis so uh Bear with me, but, you know, the the global governance system, uh, there hasn't been a a, a hot war involving a first world power domestically, sort of in their own doorstep. Mm. America has not had to fight a war in America against anyone. Europe has not had to fight a war 
in Europe, with the exception of what's happening in the Ukraine, and that's that's challenging the global governance system. Yeah. So, so really, this global governance system has kind of worked for the last few decades for first and developed world countries, but I think it's failed miserably to protect developing world countries, and that's really where people like South Africa, Nigeria, Brazil, um, India, China. Um, I want to say Russia too because they're part of that BRICS movement, mm. but I, I feel that they might be more part of the problem than yeah. the solution. Um, but that's where developing, major developing world powers need to push harder and stronger for United Nations reform. Um, to get rid of that Security Council with its five permanent members who have the veto power, yeah. who can pretty much dictate what the international community does and doesn't respond to. And as soon as we can, we, we can change that, then, then maybe we can start looking at a global governance structure that, that responds to everyone rather than just to the privileged few. I mean, I like that. I mean, very rarely do we have a, an, an, an actionable solution that we can actually move forward. Yes, I wonder how to, I don't know if it's to petition or to push for, I mean, Jacob Zuma and Kosasana and Lamini Zuma to sort of, I don't know, to be more forceful in their, in the international representation of. It is on the radar. Of some of the voices. They are pushing yeah. for it. Okay. Um, they are trying for it. But the, the sort of institutional hurdles to that are huge. Well, they're different. Um, and of course, there's no consensus within the developing world about what a new look UN should be or who should be better represented. The diplomatic tensions now between Nigeria and South Africa, a large part of them are to do with, okay, who's actually going to be the who's the real who's big be dog the African here? voice? <laughs> who's the real so when those seats are dished out on, yeah. a, on a new security council, is it South Africa going to get one or Nigeria going to get one? And it seems like this intangible, faraway thing, but, but that's what diplomats are thinking about. That's what they're arguing about right now. So it it is happening. Um, the UN is coming under increasing pressure. Okay. Um, it would just be nice if it happened quickly. Oh, there but I suppose go. we could say that about most things in life. There we go. I mean, it's really something to watch. I mean, thank you so much for for you know putting out the story around um, around the the Central African Republic situation, and we'll continue to watch that, and hopefully, hopefully, something comes of it. What I do want to talk about is is about a country that doesn't get too much attention and is often overshadowed by you know your Rwandas and Kenyas and Somalia even is Burundi. Now, Burundi has been in the news lately, and, and I've been trying to figure out what's going on. It's an interesting story. Okay. Um, so, yeah. let's, uh, let's take it back a little bit. We'll okay. rewind, okay. Um, especially for our South African audience. Um, in, I think it was 2004, 2005, um, Jacob Zuma led an African Union mediation. I think it was then the Organization of African Unity. It was... Um, or, or just changing over, he he was the the, the main uh, mediator in ending Burundi's civil war. Okay, the civil war was was vicious. It it had lots of similar sort of ethnic and cultural roots to the Rwandan genocide. You know, Rwanda and, and Burundi they're right next to each other. They're both yeah. very small. They they share a lot of common traits. So this the civil war was pretty nasty. Um, claimed something like 500,000 lives. And, you know, we always talk about the, the Rwanda genocide, yeah, but, but we don't talk about the Burundian civil war in the same way, and perhaps we should. Um, anyway, this, so this war was brought to a successful conclusion, um, and they signed an agreement called the Arusha Accord, which said, 
look, we're going to have a new democratic dispensation. Um, we're not going to have elections now because we're, we're too, mm, unstable. too unstable. So we're going to just choose someone from within ourselves. Yeah. Um, but the idea is only two terms for a president. Okay. And then we'll have someone new. You know, it all sounds quite reasonable. That's all standard. And the new president was this guy called Pierre and Kuronziza. Um, who's also known as, as, as Mr. Mr. Avo. Okay. Because, uh, he loves growing and planting and picking avocados. There we go. All and right. every, every, every sort of PR picture of him is, is, is of him in an avocado field. Um, so at least he's, he's, he's doing something, I okay, guess. Right. <laughs> um, we all like avocados. Okay. Um, but anyway, so. Okay, so we signed the agreement. Kurunziza comes into power. Comes along. Cool. And, you know, he does a, a, an okay kind of job. He's not, Great. Um, the economy sort of stutters along. He definitely has a few authoritarian tendencies. You know, media is, is not very free at all. There's not much space for civil society action. Mm. Opposition is intimidated. But it's not too extreme. It's, it's, you know, and his, his terms, you know, he's been in power for 10 years now. His term, his second term is about to run out. Mm. Um, the election's scheduled for a month's time. Great. You know, Burundi's going to have a new leader. Um, and, and, and a fresh start. Except for one thing. And Kurunziza wants to stay on in power. Okay. He wants a third term. And now what he says, and it's a very clever legal argument, and it's one that I imagine him and his team have been planning for a very <laughs> for the long past time. Two terms. The constitution yeah. of Burundi, that was, that was, that was promulgated shortly after these Arusha Accords mm. were signed. And what the Constitution says is that a president can only have two terms, and each term comes from being elected in a popular vote. Okay? So now, remember, remember in Kurunziza wasn't his first term, he was elected by that sort of assembly that had gathered to negotiate yeah, the Yeah, the OAU, not by, not by a democratic not vote. Not by yeah. a popular democratic yeah. vote. So he's saying, well, the first term didn't count, doesn't count. by the definition in the Constitution. <laughs> this is my second term. So yeah. this is, you know, I'm, oh. going, I'm now going for my second term. Fantastic. Um, immediately there were protests on the street. Um, and there was quite a vicious backlash to the protests as well. Several people have died so far. Um, dozens have been arrested, and it's quite an atmosphere of intimidation and fear. Um, however, I want to want to sort of end things on a, on a positive. I know. Note. I, I see your smile now, Simon. <laughs> you've been doing something really weird here, and you've been saying that this is this is great. This is a this is showing what is working on the continent. Well, look, look. My, here's my here's my rationale. Yeah. There's there's been a lot of sort of news stories about this is terrible. Um, this, this sort of shows how Africa hasn't changed much. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds familiar. A lot of scaremongering like about another Rwandan genocide. Oh, no. yeah, um, and another authoritarian figure who's going to massacre everyone. And sure, you know, yeah. there, there are these dangerous elements. Yeah. And, and, and anybody who's, 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 who's saying we, we need to be concerned is absolutely right. We do need to be concerned. But if we take a step back, look at a bigger picture, what does this say about Africa as a whole? And I'm not just going to look at what one man in office is doing. Yeah. I want to look at what the whole country is doing. And when you see what civil society in Burundi, how they are protesting, there's thousands and thousands of people every day going onto the streets of Bujumbura, the capital, yeah. um, loudly demanding that their democratic rights be observed in the face of live ammunition, tear gas, arrests, torture, intimidation. And yet they come back and they come back. A couple of days ago, um, the president said that all protesting was illegal and should stop. Did that stop the people? No, it didn't. This to me is 
a sign of a new, vigorous um, civil society that knows what they are allowed to expect um, and are expecting it and are, in fact, demanding it. This is a sign of how these, you know, I don't think this would have happened in Burundi 20 years ago. I think the population would have just said, okay, this is business as usual. If the president wants to stay in power, the president stays stay in power. power. Yeah. Um, but yet we've seen this peaceful, or they would have taken to the, um, taken to arms and, yeah. and started another civil war. What we're seeing is mass peaceful protest. And what we're also seeing is quite a concerted diplomatic reaction. So in Kosasana Dlamini Zuma, uh, the chair of the African Union Commission, came out in an extraordinary interview. She never says anything interesting, you know, never. She always toes the diplomatic line. But this one time, nice. she said, you know what? The president of Burundi has got it wrong. He is not entitled to a third term. Wow. He's violating the spirit of the Arusha Accords. Um, and we're going we're gonna to make sure that election doesn't take place. Yeah. You know, we're going to try and get that election postponed until we can sort that out, yeah. sort this out, and then have a proper election. So it was really strong words that the AU has now sent a team to go and negotiate with um, in Kurunziza, Jacob Zuma has sent a team of mediators, and that's important because it's his agreement, yeah. you know. And, and I think the, the key difference here is that the African Union, you know, has got a lot of slack for for not doing stuff. I mean, in the yeah, past. we've just been talking about um, sort of governance yeah. and, and sort of the, all the loopholes, not loopholes, but, but gaps in it. But this Burundi agreement yeah. is its agreement, right? It it was one of the first things the African Union signed off on yeah. in its current form. So it's quite invested in this working. It's not like some foreign-imposed um, agreement that they don't really care about and don't think is the right solution. This is the African Union agreement. So they're going to do everything in their power to make sure it is observed. And and that's what gives me hope. You know, of course, uh, no one's saying Africa is solved. Africa mm. is, um, you know, uh, we're not talking about this Africa rising narrative that, that everyone seems to love. We're just saying that... Yes, bad things are happening, but there's plenty of good things happening too, and, and and we shouldn't ignore the good things. I mean, that's I think this is so nicely dovetailing on all we were discussing before. Because 20 minutes ago, I was just like, my God, it's falling apart. Global governance is a disaster. But you're right. This is such a great example of we had a civil war. The OAU slash AU stepped in, said, guys, what do we do? Put an agreement in place. The civil war ended. You've had two terms. I'm assuming that's 10 years of peace in mm -hmm. Burundi. And now that that's being threatened by the sitting president, civil society is responding, the AU is responding, and and sort of sort of the big governments like South Africa and Jacob Zuma is responding. That's that's like exactly what should happen. You said in like yeah? thirty seconds what it took me ten minutes to say. I mean, no, I mean, let's not. <laughs> remember you did all the hard work. I just come here and talk for sort of five minutes. I mean, that's. I mean, we 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 often struggle to find good news stories, man. So it's it's, it's no, nice it is, when we it can is, find. There's lots of positives to be drawn, but yeah. uh, we do have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. Um, the the country is definitely at a a crisis point in its in, in its progress, um, and I just hope that uh, Pierre and Corinzizo will see sense. And we've had another good example of a president seeing sense recently in the form of Good Luck Jonathan from Nigeria, um, who lost that election yeah. and. Uh, you know, I've heard very, very strong rumors that that you know Nigeria was three or four hours away from a some kind of coup um, that he personally intervened to stop because he said, you know what, this is my legacy to my country is going to be a peaceful handover of power, and uh, I'm, I'm probably never going to say this in any other context, but let's follow the example of President Goodluck Jonathan. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we know Nigeria has a history of of, of coups and military and military sort of ruling. 
ruling power. So that's that's great to hear that, you know, that he that he would step in and be like, guys, like no, it's not worth it. <laughs> Somebody else can rule Nigeria, and you know, it's it's, it's fine. It really is fine. Simon, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Always a pleasure, Kingsley. Fantastic. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We are just wrapping up. Remember to download the podcast. You can tweet us, Facebook us, everything. We will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Cliffcentral.com.